0: 2020 is shaping up to be one of the most pivotal and transformational in recent history. The coronavirus and the country's racial reckoning have combined to reveal the disproportionate harm that the pandemic has caused to our country's racial and ethnic minority communities. As policymakers grapple with the need for change in our public health infrastructure, what are providers on the ground doing to break down the barriers that perpetuate our health care inequalities? Welcome back to Mintz's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. Mintz is an internationally recognized, multidisciplinary AmLaw 100 firm that tackles complex legal issues, develops strategies, and drives strategic growth for clients. Check us out on Mintz.com. I'm your regular host, Neely Yolin, but today I am thrilled to introduce you to my partner, Brent Henry, who will be taking over hosting duties for this episode about racial disparities in healthcare. Brent is a member of Mintz's health law practice based in Boston, and he brings more than 30 years of industry experience to his work advising clients on complex business, legal, and regulatory issues. Prior to joining Mintz, Brent was vice president and general counsel of Partners Healthcare, now known as Mass General Brigham, the largest hospital network in New England, and before that, he was Vice President and General Counsel of MedStar Health, a hospital system serving the Baltimore-Washington corridor. Joining Brent is Dr. Tom Sequist, Chief Patient Experience and Equity Officer at Mass General Brigham. In this role, Dr. Sequist collaborates with system leaders on strategies to eliminate disparities in clinical care delivery. Dr. Sequist is also a practicing internist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and is a professor of medicine and professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. I can't think of a better person to be speaking about this important topic. Gentlemen, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Neely, and welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's great to talk with you again. I want to kick things off by asking you to describe a little bit about what you do on a daily basis in your role as Chief Patient Experience and Equity Officer at Mass General Brigham.
2: Sure, so uh, in general, so I'm a practicing primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, So I have a panel of primary care patients that I help provide care for. Uh, In my administrative role, I is a Chief Patient Experience and Equity Officer I oversee a variety of activities that are in the in the space of quality, safety, uh, patient experience, uh, healthcare equity, community health, um, and and some other functions around um, our, our providers, uh, uh, such as uh, uh, provider well-being and clinical credentialing, and some other some other functions.
1: So, as we've spoken before, Tom, uh, we all realize that the COVID-19 pandemic has really shown a light on healthcare disparities in our country. And the recent statistic that I saw showed that Black Americans succumbed to COVID-19 at a rate of 2.3 times compared to whites, and Latinos and and Native Americans at uh, almost twice compared to whites. And I know from a regional basis, that may be even more intense. What do these disparities signify to you?
2: I think that these disparities really highlight uh long-standing underlying structural racism in our country. The the COVID-19 pandemic has really what it's really served to do is to highlight just the magnitude of these inequities in our country. And so There's nothing unique about what the COVID-19 pandemic is causing in terms of its uh, uh, disproportionate impact on communities of color, Um, diabetes outcomes, cardiovascular outcomes, cancer outcomes. You can see similar disparities um, in those outcomes. What is different about the COVID-19 pandemic is the rate at which it's happening, just the the, um, the quickness at which we're seeing these inequities develop. But ultimately, what it signifies to me. Is that we have real structural problems among our communities where we have created, you know, um, a scenario where a pandemic like this can come in and just cause uh, unimaginable harm to these communities. And so when we think about um, the the rate that you um, highlighted there among American Indians and and the mortality rate among American Indians compared to the white population for COVID-19, we have to really think about what is underlying that. Does it relate to the fact that individuals often live in crowded housing conditions or that these individuals, if you're in a black community or um, Latino community, that you uh, much more of those individuals are actually um, frontline workers um, who are you know, by necessity, you know, traveling on public transportation and working in, in 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 public spaces where they are more likely to be exposed to the virus. These are the things that are contributing to the to the higher infection rates and ultimately then leading to the higher uh, death rates.
1: And as a physician in a large healthcare system, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges that you have to deal with to address these healthcare disparities?
2: So you know we think a lot about disparities in health and disparities in healthcare. That, that's sort of been one of the conceptual models that for, for decades folks have, have thought about. And the distinction that we try to make when we think about the difference between health and healthcare is healthcare is the things that we're doing in our hospital systems, in our uh, physician's offices, you know, through insurance products and, and other ways that, that individuals access care. Whereas health, has a lot more to do with um, the global environment in which our our community members live, and and, and you know those those social determinants of health, many people um, call them, like like housing and food and employment, uh, and and other environmental factors. Those are the things that play a larger role often in the health disparities and the health outcomes. So you know as a provider system, what we have to think about is is that an artificial line or not between health and healthcare. And, and my position on this and, and, and going back to your original question about the spaces that I um, do work in in our health system is that I think that the spectrum from quality, safety um, and our patients' experience of care all the way through to community health is just a gradation of, of how we should be addressing uh, patients' health needs. So we shouldn't draw an artificial distinction between saying this is about health and not not having to do with the healthcare delivery system. And this aspect is about healthcare and what we do within our delivery system. What we should say is that this is all on a spectrum of how we uh, address our patients' needs. So what are the biggest challenges that I think are are confronting us right now? To get to your question, Brent, I think that the biggest challenges we have right now is, is how do we address these social determinants of health? Um, And from a provider system perspective, how do we do that in a way that is respectful of a lot of the work that many, many in community health have done for years, but that leverages, you know, public policy interventions, that leverages, you know, government uh, uh, sponsored programs, and that leverages that, you know, the innovation that can spring up within the communities themselves. Uh, And so we're sort of feeling our way through that new territory, I would say. And by we, I mean um, large delivery systems. We're trying to figure out what is that we, we want to, to take action in this space, but what is the way in which we can do that in the most effective manner? I really feel like one of the things we should be doing is starting off first with leveraging our core skill set. So what is our core skill set? It's delivery of healthcare services. So let's say that that's cancer screening or diabetes care or delivery of mental health care. Well, that we should figure out how do we pair that skill set with people who have a real skill set in public health and a real skill set in community health. And so bring those two things together so we can address these large challenges around food insecurity or housing insecurity.
1: And and that makes sense for a large system like Mass General Brigham. But uh, in your experience, are there things that say standalone hospitals or even individual practitioners should be thinking about in dealing with uh, healthcare disparities? Or is this really only in the realm of, uh, of large hospital systems like Mass General Brigham?
2: Yeah, it certainly isn't only in the realm of, of large delivery systems. I often think of this as there are um, two ways that a provider, whether you be a pharmacist or a nurse or a physician can respond around inequities. And sort of, um, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of get in the fight around healthcare, care, equity. So the first is that let's take an example of housing insecurity. So you as an individual provider or a small um, group practice or a small hospital may say this is a large issue uh, that I am going to have trouble impacting. So and, and that may be true. But but what I would what I would offer is the first step that we all need to, to do to take is to be. Uh, to raise our awareness of the importance of this issue for our patients, and and that means that we have to ask our patients about it. We have to be willing to to screen for these social determinants of health, Um, and and many are resistant to asking about these problems for fear that I don't have a solution around it. I actually don't um, take that uh, position on this because I feel like we should have social risk-informed care plans. So, what do I mean by that? It is really important as you're developing your diabetes care plan or your mental health care plan that you know whether or not your patient is homeless, um, that you know whether or not your patient um, is unemployed, because you may be prescribing medications that they are simply unable to take. And, and so, like any other piece of information that we use to drive our clinical care plan, like what is your blood pressure? Um, or um, what is your height and weight if I'm dosing your medication. It's also important to know, do you have access to electricity? Um, do you have access to a stable living environment? Um, and, and again, that at, at a small level, at the micro level, that should help you tweak your care recommendations, and it will help you improve your, your patient experience as well. I, as you might guess, I fundamentally believe we cannot have a good patient experience until we start to address these equity issues. Now, so that's the first way that I think that a smaller system um, and and larger systems as well should start to engage in in addressing inequities. Then the second question is, okay, well, how can we now um, not just have a social risk informed care plan, but actually start to help our patients address the issue of housing insecurity? And it is there where I feel like that kind of work is is maybe... um, Uh, best done in partnership so that we can do things at scale, creating collaborations between individual hospitals. Um, So breaking down traditional barriers that may exist between hospitals collaborating, because we need to understand that some of these issues are just so much larger than any individual hospital. They're larger than any perceived large delivery system like Mass General Brigham. We all need to work together to address these issues. So I, I, I think it's important for, for, for folks to have this two-pronged approach. First is be aware of these issues that your patients are facing and and develop a care plan that takes that information into account. It doesn't mean you're solving their housing insecurity, but you are aware of it. And then the second phase is collaborate, work together, form coalitions with other hospitals, with other agencies, with other um, officials to, to try to address these these problems.
1: That's a very... Practical approach, particularly as I said, if you're a smaller or a solo provider or um, don't have the don't have the benefit of having a, a large system behind you. Now, you talked about the social determinants of health, and a lot of understanding of that among healthcare professionals depends upon effective communication. And as we know, a lot of the uh, affected communities here are. Immigrant communities where English is not their first language. How does a place like Mass General Brigham deal with the language barrier in terms of communication? It's a great question.
2: One of the most important barriers that a patient can experience when they are trying to access healthcare is a language barrier, because it gets right at the root of our ability to communicate and understand the 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 um, healthcare need that a patient has. So I, I put this way at the top of our list of of barriers that that we need to um, uh, overcome for our patients. And and so that means making a real commitment to always having uh, a couple of things. So, and I, and I, I sort of break this work down into translator services and interpreter services. So translator services means that in your environment and in any programs that you run, that your communication materials always be available in multiple languages. And how do we pick those languages? We need to be very carefully assessing from all of our patients, what is your preferred communication language? And then we can get a sense of, you know what are the top five langu- languages that are spoken by your patients? And so uh, in the translator service space, what I mean by that is when you're hanging posters or signs up in your hallways, when you're sending out email communications or printed letter communications, if you have a mobile text messaging program, that all of that, all of that outreach, all of those printed uh, in electronic communication materials all need to be in multiple languages. That is the only way that we're going to communicate effectively with our patients. And it's also an important signal to our uh, communities that we value who they are and that we are making the required efforts to, to um, uh, engage them in, in our healthcare services. Then we move over to interpreter services. And what that really means is that is um, the ability to communicate in real time with our patients during their healthcare care encounters. Whether that healthcare encounter is virtual, like over a telephone call, or these days a, a, a video visit, or whether it's an um, in-person encounter in the emergency department or in a primary care physician's office, or, or if you were admitted to one of our hospitals, we have to ensure that we always have interpreter services available. Um, so that um, we improve the value of the uh, or the quality of the communication with our patients. Now, those seem like uh, they probably seem to you, Brian, like um, uh, sort of no brainers um, that, that we should, of course, always be doing that. But it is actually uh, quite an operational lift for all of our hospitals across the country to really commit to that goal and invest in that goal and, and make sure that we are um, tracking to deliver on that goal.
1: Yeah, no question about that, and it's it's not number one. It's not cheap to do that, and also uh, just finding competent interpreters uh, to speak all those languages has right. has Mass General Brigham run up against that challenge, and if so, how have you solved it?
2: Right, I, I would say uh, a couple of things. We are. It is uh, you know during the COVID pandemic, it is of course hard to. Identify all of the, the um, skill sets that we need to address the pandemic, whether it's in, in uh, uh, language interpreters or nursing staff or all kinds of other uh, role important uh, leadership role groups. I would say though that in this space of of language and uh, translation services, what we need to start doing is if we don't have enough uh, available staff, we we should develop programs and and um, uh, support programs that help train a new generation of folks who can help us in this space. I, I just, um, you know, one of the things that I would hi- highlight, and especially during the COVID pandemic, is from from myself as a as a primary care physician, but as, as many um, could can relate who are probably listening as as patients and family uh, family members of patients. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, during the COVID pandemic, what could have been, you know, more cruel about this disease than than the isolation. And I think that that isolation comes in two forms. One is not being able to visit your family member during a, their hospital stay uh, uh, because of infection control um, uh, policies and procedures that are in place. And the other is um, not being able to communicate with your care team when you are severely, severely ill. Uh, and, and it's just, you know, it is, our, it is our responsibility. It is our duty, really, to make sure that patients don't feel isolated in that way. mm mm-hmm.
1: As, and um, I'm just going to broaden the lens a little bit because when we talk about healthcare disparities, much of the conversation recently has been focused on racial and ethnic disparities. But there are also disparities, as we know, with, uh, in, with respect to people with disabilities uh, and some other areas. How does MGB deal with that? So we
2: have during the particularly during the COVID pandemic, but, but uh, prior to that as well, we have work streams that deal with all versions of equity. We do have equity um, work streams that relate to patients and staff who have um, disabilities. I'll, I'll give you a pretty um, straightforward example, which is early on in the pandemic, we had you know, instituted a policy across our, all of our hospital, hospitals that required both staff and patients when entering our facilities to, to wear masks at all times. And as you know, I'm sure wearing masks cuts down on the um, infection rates in communities and in, 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 in um, uh, hospitals as well. And, and we've been able to successfully show and publish on those data. But here's the, the question that comes up is, um, you know, uh, for our staff and for our patients who have disabilities, there, there are two important examples within that. One is, what if our staff um, or, or our patients have a physical disability? that makes it hard for them to put the mask on. Or they have a physical disability that the mask itself doesn't fit because of physical features that they have. Um, It is really important for us to be able to address all of those and to design masks that actually can um, help keep our patients and staff safe, but also are respectful of uh, the disabilities that our patients and staff have. Um, Another example that comes up is, what about our staff um, who have hearing disabilities and rely on lip reading. Well, wearing a mask, uh, and and everyone around you wearing a mask when you rely on um, lip reading um, is actually uh, basically sort of cuts off your main mode of communication. And so, how are we going to deal with that? And so, we, you know, in that in that um, uh, setting, we should be able to design masks that you can see through that are clear um, in order to allow our, again, our staff, our patients with disabilities to still maintain their communication. So it is, you know, the, the, the concept of equity is really broad and it, you're right, it is not related to only race, ethnicity or language, but there are lots of um, dimensions to ac- equity that are important for us to address. Um, I say that Brent, but I, and I also believe pretty strongly that one of the, the most important crises going on in our country right now is the crisis of racism. And so it is really important for us to to remember that the the mortality rates, the differences that you were citing before, um, and and for for our listeners to know that um, uh, when you cited that there could be regional differences, it is absolutely true if you go to a state like Arizona or New Mexico, that the difference in mortality rate between American Indians and and the the white population is is not uh, 1.5, it's actually uh, on the order of three uh, or more. Uh, full of differences in mortality, that these differences in mortality are really related to structural racism. They're related to, to decades, and in the case of American Indians, centuries of, of policies um, that have created the scenario that we have. And uh, these policies didn't um, accidentally create the, the inequities and disparities that we have. These policies were intended to create those inequities and disparities that we have right now. It's important for us to confront that and take that on as 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 the um, public health crisis that it is right now.
1: No question. Um, and you point up a very challenging um, task. So how is M- MGB actually confronting it?
2: So we have launched what we have uh, termed our United Against Racism campaign. Our United Against Racism campaign actually has three components to it. We are focused on our healthcare workers. That's our first component. The second component is focused on our patients and healthcare equity. And the third component is focused on our community health. And, and we have made significant investments in all of these spaces that's going to enable us to take on very specific goals. And we are holding our executive leadership team, including myself, accountable to these goals in the space of of our, our, our people, our patients and our communities. So to give you examples of what we're talking about to better support our people, our, our healthcare workforce, we are working on uh, traditional topics like improving the diversity of our leadership teams, but we are also working on new and innovative topics like enabling uh, a reporting system across our, across our whole organization that will allow our healthcare workers to report incidents of racism We, very similar to reporting safety incidents and and that kind of a safety incident reporting system exists across many organizations, including ours. We are um, paralleling that now with a racism reporting, uh, racism incident reporting system. We are gonna couple that with training on anti-racism and and an escalation and reconciliation process for uh, identified instances of racism. So that's a, that's a, um, a program that we will be launching over the course of this coming year. Uh, we, we uh, you know, in the healthcare equity space, we are going to be working on imp- re- what I perceive to be really important topics uh, like e- expanding access to and universal access to a translator and interpreter services. We're going to be really working on um, addressing inequities and access to our digital health offerings during the COVID pandemic, we learned pretty quickly that many, many communities are not able to access digital health offerings at the same rate as other communities, and those communities tend to break down by by socioeconomic status and by the diversity of those communities. We are going to be um, doing something that we call eliminating racialized medicine. So what that means is um, if we are inappropriately using race or ethnicity in, in any of our clinical calculators or clinical algorithms within our system, we will remove that. Um, That's sort of a long topic Brent, but but it has a long history in medicine of us using uh, patient race or ethnicity as part of clinical prediction tools that that drive decision making, and we don't feel that that's uh, appropriate. On the the community health side, you know, we are going to really work to link our uh, clinical delivery services with our community health approach. By doing things like creating mobile, mobile health care units, uh, vans or, or RVs that are that will go out to our communities and help deliver uh, chronic disease management, preventive services. Um, I, I hope actually that they will help us address our, our COVID pandemic as we move forward through the winter months. Um, we are going to establish a much more robust community health worker workforce um, that's going to help us um uh, uh, address some of the social determinants of health that we've been talking about so we we have tried to make a, a very broad-based um, uh, initiative around uh, being an anti-racist organization but with it have come very specific accountable targets which I think are really important for organizations to to make sure that we are not just setting you know sort of higher goals that that we stand against racism but that we are creating very specific, accountable goals for our managers for our frontline managers to achieve
1: no that sounds fantastic and some very practical uh, solutions that other healthcare providers you know can also follow Tom you mentioned uh, the notion of digital health and a lot of people now as a result of the pandemic are realizing that telehealth is really uh, becoming a tool that uh, the folks can use to access their providers when necessary what role do you see telehealth as playing uh, in trying to close the racial and ethnic healthcare disparity gap?
2: So I would see telehealth uh, much the way that I see a lot of aspects of of healthcare equity, which is there are really two overarching principles that we should keep in mind. The first principle is that as we expand telehealth, we should ensure that it doesn't exacerbate existing inequities. And the second principle is that as we implement telehealth, we should design it in such a way that it's actually intended to eliminate disparities. So, so Brent, you, you, know, you could insert, you could replace telehealth with any healthcare intervention in that space, because I think those two guiding principles are so important for us. Make sure you first do no harm, right? Make sure you don't exacerbate inequities. And then the second is design it very intentionally in a way that you're trying to use that tool to eliminate healthcare disparities. Um, You know, telehealth is not a new topic. It's it's been around for decades. And so um, a lot of the development, I would say, um, on large scale for many years has not been designed in a way that it was intentionally meant to reduce inequities. That is not meant to say that no one has thought of this and that there hasn't been some design elements, but I would say as in design elements meant to address inequity. But as an industry, moving forward, I do not think that it's been intentionally designed in a way that's meant to um, um, address disparities. And as we saw during our COVID pandemic, it definitely, as telehealth services expanded, um, seemed to leave certain patient populations and communities behind. So it is really important for us to address I, I, what I think are sort of four core areas in this space. The first is that we have to ensure that there is routine broadband access for all communities. We have difficulty conducting video visits and Zoom, um, Zoom um, encounters with our colleagues on American Indian, uh, in like let's say in the Navajo Nation, because it is very hard to establish good broadband connectivity. Um, that shouldn't exist in 2020. We should have universal broadband access across the whole country for all communities. The second topic that needs to be addressed is making sure that all communities have access to the hardware that's needed. Tablets, whether they be iPads or other, or other um, versions of tablets, smartphones, just the, the, literally the tools that would enable them to engage in, in virtual health and telehealth. The third important component of this is making sure once you have the hardware, and, and the broadband internet access, the connectivity, making sure that the tools themselves are accessible to patients, and by that I mean they're in the right language, that they are able to be used, that the usability is at a level that, that you don't need to have a very sophisticated digital health literacy uh, knowledge base to use them. And I would say honestly, like we don't tend to develop telehealth tools from the te- telehealth tools from the ground up in multiple languages. And and, and that from the ground up is really important because that's different than building your entire tool in, in English and therefore targeting it to English speaking patients. And then in retrospect, trying to retrofit it in Spanish or Mandarin and other languages. It's really important to build these things from the ground up in multiple languages. It's also really important to build these things from the ground up for users who aren't as digitally enabled. And again, we, we often don't do that. We don't make that investment. And, then, and so that's the third pillar is usability. And then the fourth pillar has to do with our own internal biases within delivery systems. We have to make sure that we offer all of these tools and services to all patients. We often have embedded implicit biases, which is another way it, when we talk about implicit biases around race it's another way of saying racism, we have these implicit biases around who we offer these services to. We may make judgments without knowing it, without realizing it, about who we think is going to be able to use these tools. And if we make a judgment that we don't think that that patient could avail themselves of a tool, we may not even offer it to them. We have to make sure that we get past those biases and offer and extend the use of these services to all of our patients.
1: So Tom thank you very much for this clear-eyed analysis of what uh, what some of the challenges are and and frankly what some of the practical solutions that practitioners at all levels can employ to uh, to help bridge the gap with respect to these disparities. I really appreciate your time today. Neely I'm going to turn it back over to you.
0: Wow. Thank you both so much for being here today. This is such an important issue and clearly we have a lot of work to do. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions or comments about this or any prior episode, or you would like to propose questions or a topic for an upcoming episode, please email us at That's healthlawdiagnosed@mintz.com. That's Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a few weeks when we'll be talking about bioethics in a pandemic.